Is Archimedes the secret to lamprey control? Is pH a problem for Great Lakes fish? Do fish do, well, that thing that many local eight-year-olds want to know if they do? To find out, let's ask Dr. Fish. That's right. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Fish, a every other month's show in which we ask pressing fish questions, science questions, and life questions to our two doctors, Fish. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and we are so excited to be here. I'm joined today by uh, Carolyn Foley, not a Dr. Fish, but still very awesome from Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And we are also joined today by not one but two Doctors Fish. First, we have Katie O'Reilly, Aquatic Invasives Outreach Specialist uh, with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, Dr. Catfish on Twitter. We are also joined by Titus Seilheimer, among the many, the top two Doctors Fish with Wisconsin Sea Grant. Titus, Katie, welcome. And let's just hop right in to it we have a handful of stories we're going to talk about but if you're live i forgot that's right if you're live you can look at youtube maybe you're at facebook um and then you just uh, type in a question and our doctor's fish will answer it because that's what they do uh or if you're on twitter use the hashtag ask dr fish and we will monitor that and we will bring in your questions there and no question is too small uh no job is too big no fee is too big and no question is too small for ask dr fish so first of all we have a story here. Our first story is brought to us by um, Wood TV in Michigan. Uh, they're talking about sea lamprey control in the Great Lakes. Now, Titus, I have a question. I thought sea lamprey were covered. I thought they were taken care of by lamprecide. Why are we worrying about other uh, other methods of control? Yeah, so uh, a couple. It's a it's a good good question, Stuart. And you know, uh, the chemical treatment and and. Uh, for lamprey management has been a very important part of that. Uh, you know, we are, we're over 90% uh, below where we were at historic lamprey level. So, you know, it's a overall a great story, but there's, you know, you, you can keep treating them, but as, as many of us know, there are issues throughout the Great Lakes Basin with uh, things like barriers um, you know, barriers can be good, like an old dam might block the sea lamprey from moving upstream. That's good news. They can't spawn upstream then. Uh, but it also, on the bad side, will block uh, fish passage. So there might be some desirable fish we want to move up past that dam. And what we want to know is how can we move the fish we want without the things we don't want, like sea lamprey? Like Titus said, you know, the, the treatment with what's called a lampricide isn't 100% effective. So you're always going to get some lamprey that may get through. And then you also have the cost, you know, uh, the U.S. and Canada together spend millions of dollars each year doing this treatment for lampreys, as well as even things like the COVID pandemic can disrupt how much treatment happens. So, you know, despite the success of the lampricide, we still have lamprey in the Great Lakes that are causing all sorts of sucky trouble. yeah that they do so wait did i hear you right katie millions of dollars is that how much they spend on this each year yeah it is it is a big undertaking both in terms of the cost of the treatment as well as you know just having people out there to apply this this lamprecide to the streams where the lamprey spawn yeah and it's you know about 25 million dollars a year and it you know it is a great it's a great story of invasive species management, of cooperation between the U.S. and Canada, uh, between the states and the tribes, everybody working together. So I think it's a it's a good story. 
But, you know, at the same time, it is also costly. Like, what could we do if we didn't have these lamprey to control? What could we do with that $25 million a year? Like, you could do a lot of great habitat stuff. But we have the lamprey instead. And so what is this other, so this new story, they're doing a, a fish pass. What is what is going on with this? Yeah, so the fish pass story uh, is takes place in around Traverse City, Michigan, on the Boardman River. And it's really um, the story of the Great Lakes Restoration Project. Uh, this has been a, a somewhat like a 20-year restoration project to reconnect the Boardman River with Lake Michigan. Uh, and it would replace this old failing dam that would it, basically be a new, brand new, uh, complete barrier that will have the ability to sort fish, essentially, um, you know, sort the good fish from the bad, quote unquote, bad fish, as Titus was saying. So letting native species move upstream into the lake kind of both ways, uh, but preventing invasive species such as the sea lamprey from accessing habitat upstream where they they aren't currently established. Yeah, and I think one of the benefits of Fish Pass is it's also a research facility. So it is, you know, really, uh, it will be a location to study how can you selectively pass, you know, some fish versus others, you know, keeping lamprey down. So, uh, you know, that is, so it's not just a benefit to the Great Lakes. It can also, you know, this could have applications all over the world because, you know, fish movement and fish passage and barriers are, are you know, not a Great Lakes issue. It's a, a global issue. Yeah. And what's really cool, too, is, you know, they're starting out sort of with manual sorting. So humans doing the sorting, uh, but they're doing research to see if they could use things like um, AI and identification to s- basically automate the process of selecting. Oh, okay. you know, this is uh, yeah, like having cameras. And so like this is a lamprey shape. So this fish does not doesn't get to pass, whereas this is a uh, native trout. And so it can pass essentially. Or this is a non this is a non-native trout, and but we want it to pass because it is a desirable sport fish. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then we get the human subjectiveness again. That, fair enough. So they're gonna have a little fish GPT or whatever there, sort of measuring each one or deciding what it is and, and going, oh, that's cool. How are they gonna get the fish up there? Do you it's like so it's like a ramp? Do fish swim uphill? How does this work? Yeah, you know, and I think it is uh, right now it would be, you know, if you looked at that picture, there was kind of two different kind of parallel tracks that the fish could go into. And that gives them, uh, you know, some flexibility to uh, test out different things because this is really the research aspect of of fish pass. So, um, you know, how they will do that, I think, will depend on what the projects are. Yeah, because the yeah, that last last picture there. Yeah, you can see those, you know, kind of two parallel uh, kind of areas there. And it's, I mean, it's going to be really cool, you know, from a science communication perspective as well. You know, there's going to be a lot of public access here. You know, you can, you know, walk over that bridge and, and you know, talk to the public or the public can see this science in action. So I think that's, you know, great, great stuff. Yeah. And one of the things I found cool about the article that, kind of prompted this whole discussion was this idea of a tool called the Archimedes screw, which is something I hadn't actually heard about. Is that where, so Archimedes comes and he sorts the fish, right? Is that how it works? No, this was a game we played in college, but it was a little different. So for those of you watching live, they have a, it's an Archimedes screw, a picture or a video. We can do video live. That's one of the reasons we do this. And so they're showing it. This is a way to, it looks like they're getting that water up there without a lot of work, huh? Yeah. So my understanding is basically it's this helix that is used to pull water up 
with relatively low energy. Um, and they're trying to figure out if this could be a, a tool for also, in addition to pulling water up, pulling the fish up in a way that would hopefully not totally stress out the fish too much. Yeah. And then having a, there's some kind of, yeah, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, video picture-based sorting, you know, I'm not, I wasn't clear on if it was before they go in that, that Archimedes screw or after, but, um, you know, it's really cool to use technology to be able to, you know, probably sort the fish and say, oh, you're a lamprey, you go downstream, you're out of here. But if you're a other fish, you get to go over the barrier. You get to ride on the Archimedes screw, which seems, if I was a fish, I, w- I would enjoy that. <laughs> But you're not a fish. So, okay, so we need to bring something up here as we're talking about innovations and moving fish. Stuart is absolutely obsessed with this salmon cannon. And I don't know if salmon cannon. Can you guys tell us a bit about the salmon cannon? And maybe we can take a look if the cannon that shoots salmon. I mean, what more do you need to know? It's very straightforward. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's there on the tin, but basically the salmon cannon, uh, became viral a couple of years ago. It's this uh, instrument or equipment built by a company called Whoosh Whoosh Innovations, which is so appropriate. Basically, I mean, it is a series of tubes in which you can put a fish, in this case, a salmon, and it will literally pull the salmon over the man-made obstruction. So a dam, rather than what's a common way of moving salmon upstream is like collecting them, putting them on a, a water truck, and then driving up above the dam and putting them back into the river. So, yeah. So here's the video. Katie, I think technically it whooshes over the dam. Technically it whooshes. I, I, I think that's the appropriate terminology. So is this mostly, this has been used out west? Is that where it's installed right now? That's my understanding is a lot of this work has been done out on the Pacific coast, you know, with the migratory salmon that are having a lot of challenges because they can't access their upstream habitat because of dams. Yeah, the scale of these dams is really big. I mean, out west, they're they're huge dams. So, you know, I think what's what's really cool about about the salmon cannon is it can go over. You know, some of these like are going way over these really tall embankments and dams. So, yeah, I I'd love to get into one of those. Like, do they have a <laughs> a, a doctor fish size salmon? A doctor fish cannon yet? All right, let's go. I think that they do those um, when people get fired out of cannons at like baseball games and stuff. Maybe that can be a similar experience for you. Um, So apparently we have a question from Facebook um, and maybe we'll go to Titus on this one. What is the origin story of lamprey? But I'm going to I'm going to expand that slightly. What is the origin story of sea lamprey, invasive sea lamprey versus other lamprey? All right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, sea lamprey, native to the North Atlantic, uh, that's that's where they live. They attach to large fish out there. So think sharks, think, uh, you know, really big like bluefish along the coast. Um, and what happened uh, as humans uh, settled, we uh, European uh, folks settled the uh, the Great Lakes region. Uh, we wanted to move things. So we, we started building canals. Uh, You've heard of the Erie Canal. And what the Erie Canal does is connects the Hudson River, which is native sea lamprey habitat, to the Great Lakes system. So connected into Lake Ontario. And uh, what the kind of neat uh, life history of sea lamprey is, is they live out in the ocean or in the Great Lakes. uh, And then they will migrate upstream. So that uh, life cycle you've heard of with salmon, 
they move upstream and that's what they did here. They moved up uh, the Hudson and they were like, oh, I'm going to take a left and I'm going to get into this canal. Uh, they got into the Great Lakes uh, kind of 1830s into Lake Ontario. Uh, later, about, uh, I think, the 19, 1930s, they really uh, showed up in the the lakes above Niagara Falls. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, they've been here ever since and caused a lot of problems. And I'll just very, very quickly say why I said the invasive sea lamprey is there are a lot of native lamprey. And if you want to learn more about those, uh, Dr. Katie O'Reilly has a lot of really great information on her Twitter feed. Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, like Carolyn said, there we've got four species of native lamprey in the Great Lakes, too. And not all of those lamprey are parasitic as adults. Some of them. Uh, so essentially how the lamprey feeds is it's sucks onto a fish and consumes various bodily fluids. But some of these lamprey, when they become adults, actually don't eat at all until they, you know, they spawn and then they die. So that's kind of cool too. But there's a lot of cool facts about native lamprey. It could be its own Ask Dr. Fish show. Yeah, I've got a whole box of plastic uh, sea lamprey behind me. And I, if I had planned ahead, I would have had them, you know, in the screen for <laughs> watching live. Cool. So let's move on. We have a couple of other stories that we wanted to chat about today. Um, the second one comes to us from the Milwaukee Independent, and it's related to pH in the Great Lakes. So according to research being done at the Great Lakes Environmental Lab, um, is it the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab? I'm not sure. Um, but the pH of the Great Lakes is decreasing, making it more acidic. Um so can you tell us, maybe we'll go to Katie first this time, um, why, like, what would, how would this pH affect fish and why might decreasing, like, how might that um, affect fish in the Great Lakes or, yeah, specifically Great Lakes here, but then maybe we can expand out to some others. Yeah. So first off, I think it's good to just explain what pH is, if it's been a while since your, you know, high school chemistry class. But essentially, pH is a measure of how acidic or basic a liquid is. So if it's a lower pH value, something we call it something more acidic, has a higher pH value, it's more basic. Natural waters in the Great Lakes have a pH typically around high 7, low 8, um, and pH can increase in water when it's in contact with carbon dioxide. So as humans have increased uh, their emissions from burning fossil fuels, uh, we've increased the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere, and that CO2 has to go somewhere. And part of the place it goes is into water, whether that's fresh water like the Great Lakes, or as you might have heard, uh, the process of ocean acidification. You also have CO2 that gets into the ocean waters. And so when that carbon dioxide reacts with water, it basically disassociates and the water becomes more acidic. So that pH value goes down. And why that's of concern in both marine and freshwater systems is because we really don't know how this is gonna play out with fish. There's been some lab studies that have shown that increased uh, acidity in waters can sort of disrupt fish sensory processes. So they may not be able to hear as well, or they may not be able to detect predators as well. 
Uh, but a lot of these have been done in labs and on relatively small scales. So we don't have a great understanding of what might happen in these natural systems. Um, there's also the concern that because, you know, when you have more acidic water, that can dissolve things that make like shells. So you may have impacts lower down on the food web on the types of things that fish eat. Oh, but so this is part of the problem, not so much Great Lakes, but when you hear about coral reefs and things like that, that ocean acidification, exactly. of course, is a problem. And that's yep. why. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and that could be a challenge for things like oysters and clams, you know, because they just can't form those shells uh, if the, the acidity is too low. So, um, and, you know, if we turn back the clock to kind of our industrial, you know, 60s and 70s, if you remember acid rain, and this was much higher concentrations and much more acidified lakes uh, because of that, that was the sulfur going into the atmosphere and then, uh, you know, really lowering. Um, and especially, you know, up in Canada, there were a, just a whole whole bunch of very acidified lakes that, you know, it was not good for fish. Um, and that, yeah, so, uh, this is, you know, a much different scale because it's much, much kind of, you know, smaller amounts. Um, and the Great Lakes are huge. So a very big volume of water. And then, you know, to throw in, because I'm an ecologist, I like to throw in more complexity. Uh, you know, where I live near the Niagara Escarpment, which is limestone, uh, is, well, actually, uh, that limestone uh, which is full of calcium, will actually buffer that acidity. So it won't actually go as low if you have this uh, this limestone or dolomite around. So, you know, it may not even be equal. It might be, you know, Lake Superior might have one, one you know, it might be a bigger impact there uh, than other places. Yeah. And I'll just add, it may not be that acidification is bad for all creatures too. In some cases, acidification may favor like certain types of algae or plants. So it's it's tough to tell, and, and that's part of why I think uh, the Great Lakes Research Environmental Research Lab, uh, part of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is starting to measure, uh, you know, the acidity of the Great Lakes. They've set up this sensor system in Lake Huron to start giving us uh, baseline data that we can use to help increase our understanding and figure out what some of these impacts are going to be. Cool. Um, so I guess the other thing that's sticking in my head right now is you guys are talking about oysters and shells and stuff. And we there is kind of a shelled organism that is at the base of Great Lakes food webs right now, zebra and quagga mussels. Um, so I guess it'd be interesting to think about um, and see what kind of effects might happen there too. Um, but we do have uh, two questions. Hello, live viewers. Um, so a shout out to uh, Linda D watching from Florida, but live in Michi Michigan. Keeping our fisheries healthy is awesome. Thank you, it Linda. Is. Hey, Linda. <laughs> yeah, Where are you in Florida? That's where I spent many years living in Florida. Where are you? So I can say hi to your fish, your local fish specifically. <laughs> and then um, there's a question about lamprey from um, Kenyon S. What natural predators do lamprey have? Yeah. So lamprey, uh, you know, okay. I, I would break that into two parts. So we have the life history part where they're in the streams and they actually spend most of their life in streams, they're filter feeders. So they kind of stick their heads up, filter the stuff coming down through the water. Um, and so they could be, you know, fish in those streams might eat them, birds, uh, other animals. Uh, then when they transform and become parasitic, they head out to the larger body of water, like, uh, the great lake. And, you know, they, they don't have a lot of predators. You know, I, I think there are reports of like lake trout 
uh, lake trout, you know, eating them. Like if something can eat them, they probably will. But, you know, they're generally down in the dark, not easy to predate on. So um, there's not a lot of, of predators out there. And then um, I don't know if humans count as a natural predator, but I don't know that lamprey pie has really taken off in North America. No, it hasn't. But I note their hot dog shape. I was just thinking about this. Um, they are tubular, uh, but they've got a little bit of a bite to them. I think that not, not probably got a bit of mercury in them that, you know, yeah. might want to avoid. That has been the problem. The mercury levels are so high that uh, you can't actually export them because they've actually looked at that, like sending them over to Europe where they want to eat them you know portugal uk you know this is a delicacy and they don't have enough over there we've got more than we want and uh but yeah that has been a problem we see there's a couple of questions about um how to reduce ph we will check up that and then maybe get back to you and you can maybe have a look at some other um because those we don't know quite as much <laughs> we're fish people in the water. So, um, but we can take a look. There may be some resources around that we can share about that on um, with the recording of this down the line. So um, maybe we'll move to, because it's winter in the Great Lakes region, let's talk about ice. Okay, so um, there hasn't been a whole lot of ice on the Great Lakes this winter. So what does that mean for fish? Katie first. Yeah. So uh, for fish, ice is actually a really important part of their life cycles, um, especially for species such as lake whitefish in the Great Lakes, because the uh, these species spawn in the kind of late fall, early winter, and their eggs develop over the winter to hatch in spring. And so the ice basically provides a layer of protection from winter storms, from the eggs getting, you know, thrown around, beat up. Uh, and so a lack of ice can really affect the hatching success of species like like whitefish. Uh, but ice also has somewhat bigger uh, landscape level effects on fish because when you have less ice on the Great Lakes, you have more open water in the winter and evaporation can be really high, uh, leading to lower lake levels, which can affect how much habitat is available, as well as uh, changing some, you know, weather patterns and having, uh, you know, potentially more storms and less protection of the shorelines uh, because you don't have that ice barrier. So it can have, you know, both the immediate effects, say, like on the eggs, but can also affect just the physical habitat of the lakes as well. Yeah. And up on, uh, you know, places they're actually seeing more with less ice cover. There's actually more lake effect snow now. Uh, in places like the Upper Peninsula, um, over in Michigan. Uh, so that, you know, when you think snow now and then runoff later, um, you know, that can just change the dynamic of of kind of how much water is in those tributaries and when it's coming. So, you know, lots lots of stuff changing. And this, you know, the the trends that we've seen, there's really good data set on Great Lakes ice cover back to the 70s. And, you know, it does seem like there, there was it used to be a lot higher. And in the last 20 years or so, the just kind of the average amount of ice is, uh, is a lot lower. And, you know, we, we saw a, a very large significant storm on Lake Erie uh, was that earlier, you know, in the last couple months, like over the winter when Lake Erie usually would be covered in ice um, and they had just huge, uh, it was not covered in ice, huge waves, lots of coastal flooding. So 
um, yeah, there's, you know, impacts on, on the biota impacts on people and, you know, and also really bad ice skating, um, really so, and ice fishing. Yeah. There's a guy in our neighborhood who has a big thing set up in the yard. It's like a, it's supposed to be a, it's like a huge kiddie pool essentially, but it's supposed to be an ice skating rink. You know, you can get some laps going on in it. Uh, zero times this winter, zero times has he been able to use it. He was at poker night the other night. Um, bemoaning it uh, uh so shout out to tim and i'm sorry thinking about uh if you're interested in in uh ice and warm winters we actually just did a episode of teach me about the great lakes where we talked about it um and that is we spoke with uh, dr richard rude he goes by ricky but in professional context uh dr richard rude at the university of michigan uh, about warming winters and he does a lot of climate science research and it was an interesting conversation that you can find at teach me about the great lakes.com slash seven five the number 75 uh, or just you know look for it in your pod feeder your pod catcher pod reader just search for it and you'll find it um so thank you and um related to the conversation we were just having um Kenyon s again has a question how sensitive are fish to weather cycles um and how does it affect kind of their metabolism and their survival rate so um katie yeah i mean a lot of times when we think about the effects of weather on fish you know you can think about what kinds of weather patterns are we seeing? Are we seeing increased precipitation in the form of storms or like really heavy rain events that, you know, basically cause a lot of runoff to come to the lake? Um, and, and things like that can lead to algal blooms uh, that can, you know, either in some cases provide like good nutritious algae for fish or cause these nuisance blooms that can uh, cause what we call hypoxia or low oxygen that would be negative towards fish. It kind of just depends a lot, you know, what effect is that weather having on some of the things that the fish relies on? So it's food, it's habitat. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, on a shorter time period, you know, like, especially for fish, uh, things like temperature are really important. You know, fish have a, a specific range of temperature. If you're a cold water species, like a brook trout, and if those weather cycles are, you know, making the, the water warmer in parts of the year, you know, that could really limit like their survivability. They just can't survive if the water gets too warm. Um, you know, and I think, you know, just thinking about winter, because we're, you know, in the middle of this very kind of mild winter, at least where I'm at. And, you know, I for the last, you know, 10,000 years, our, our winters were colder and now if they're going to be a little warmer, if there's going to be more rainfall instead of snow, that means, you know, runoff happening in the winter. Um, imagine if you're a, a fish that spawned in the fall. So, you know, to kind of go back to the, the Lake Whitefish and the Cisco uh, or, you know, burbot, which spawn right now under the ice, um, you know, their eggs are out there over the winter, but if you have a big rainfall, which I think we're supposed to get rain this week or this week here in Manitowoc. So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that would have been snow. That snow is going to sit on the landscape. It's going to melt in the, the spring. Now we're just getting it falling as rain in the winter. It's running off. Um, so that is, you know, affecting the kind of the biology of these fish. Cool. And well, not necessarily cool, but interesting. <laughs> interesting. Um, so, okay. So you talked a little bit about Cisco. Um, and so can you explain, I'm going to go to Titus on this one. Can you explain what is the deal with the name Cisco? Cisco. 
Um, it's not the internet, you know, company or software company. Yeah, it's not. It's not the food service. This came up during the Lakeys, I think, too. This is a this is maybe the the frequently asked question uh, uh, among teach me about the Great Lakes and what have you. That's great, Katie. Do you have an answer for that? <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not actually sure where specifically the word Cisco or name Cisco comes from, but I will mention that there is a ton of confusion with regard to the name Cisco. So Cisco is the the common name of one particular species of whitefish found in the Great Lakes, but there are also a ton of other whitefish species that are either called like short jaw Cisco, um, Blackfin Cisco, and they're all very genetically similar, and it causes it causes me at least a lot of heartburn and headache trying to figure out the phylogeny and how to communicate about the this what's essentially called a species block or a group of species that are uh, genetically pretty similar but have diverged in somewhat recent evolutionary speaking uh, terms. And they're all called Cisco. So it's like, you know. What? What? Hello? Hello? Oh, yes. Yes, you're right. They they have, they're not, they're not separate species anymore. Okay. Yeah, I just had a call there. Oh, wait, it's ringing again. Oh, yeah. No, they, they are species now. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Hey, Titus, look down at, look down at your phone. Look down at, that's a, that's one of these corporate university business phones, right? What's the logo on the phone that you keep answer the call yes this is a cisco uh cisco phone that i'm that i'm looking at so it's like being surrounded by fish all the time um yeah and you may know cisco as lake herring so that is the the kind of more like when i talk to a commercial fisherman up in lake superior they're that's the herring fishery it's not don't call it a cisco uh because it they have called them herring for a long time they're not actually herring which is why you know it's kind of a, a misnomer in terms of uh uh, common names. So, What's the deal with the name Cisco? Yeah, I really need to. Yeah, I need to do a host fail here because I sent the question over to Titus, but Titus was the one who asked it. So I think we're going to go to a short musical break, and then and we'll I be forgot back that I asked that too. With so. more, I would have been more prepared for my own question. <laughs> if, uh... Yeah, fair enough. Anytime we talk about lake ice, we have our lake ice theme song. So let's go with it. So it is February 13th, 2023, which means tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Whether you love it, whether you hate it, one of the best things that comes out of Valentine's Day in recent years is fish valentines. So they're all over the internet. You see pictures, different organizations put them up. So for a second, we want to ask our audience, anyone who's live, if there's a fish valentine that you think is really clever, really awesome, please go ahead and share it. And then to our doctor's fish, do you have a favorite that you'd like to make sure everyone is aware of before tomorrow's big day? I think mine is I only have walleyes for you. Honestly, I think that's one of my favorites too. I was trying to find the image that has like the huge googly eyes on a walleye. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's 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 a fish valentine. That's the whole thing. Oh. <laughs> we'll find it. 
Well, and, you know, for me, for me, it's definitely going to be the Burbit. Uh, and I'm going to just plug our uh, recent episode from Wisconsin Sea Grant of The Fish Dish uh, with Sharon Moen and Marie Zwickoff, uh, where they talked to me, uh, Dr. Fish, uh, lover of Burbit, uh, which, uh, you know, forget about Valentine's Day. It is Burbatine's Day. Uh, this is the time of year when Burbits are getting together under the ice. They're spawning. Uh, in a this wriggling ball of of just slimy uh, tubular fish, so and they're singing too, right? And they are singing. They're also making noise, uh, beating the muscles on their swim bladder, making sounds. So you know the the sounds of love under the ice, uh, the wonderful burbot. So a beautiful serenade. Absolutely. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Happy Burbatine's Day. Burbatine's Day. Burbatine's Day. So we've got a couple of different options, too. If you look at, like, the Shedd Aquarium has some. The Great Lakes Fishery Commission, who um, I think we were talking about them a little bit earlier, they have some. Illinois Indiana Sea Grant has some. So um, go ahead and take a look for those. We'll also try to add them in some links and share them via our social media um, so that they're ready for you. <laughs> if you really want to express your love with a fish. Um, and you should. You should. <laughs> Everyone will appreciate it more. Oh, Lake Trout, I've grown so attached to oh, you. Oh, is that a lamprey? It's a lamprey. Oh. It's a lamprey. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, it's Tammy. very, very on topic for today. Yeah. All right. Uh, Tammy, do you have more of these? Have yep, let's do it. Roses mm. are red. Sturgeon have scoots. They are great for protection, but also look pretty cute. Nice. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> okay do we have right, timmy do you have one more we got one more yes another lamprey i'm stuck i'm stuck on, on you. you with a terrifying lamprey face. and i look rather terrifying but also cute <laughs> Sorry. not their fault you know a face a mother lamprey could love yes yeah <laughs> All right. All right. So speaking of sturgeon and their scutes, I'll professionally transition um, from there. So Titus, you were out doing some sturgeon or talking about sturgeon spearing. What is the deal with sturgeon spearing? Uh, tell me about this and why it shouldn't make me sad. Well, I, I don't know if it won't make you sad, but uh, so Wisconsin is home to one of the the largest uh I would say the healthiest uh, lake sturgeon population in the world in the Lake Winnebago system. So uh, Lake Winnebago is that big, the biggest inland lake in Wisconsin, within Wisconsin. Um, you can see it in the Northeast part of the state. Uh, they have, they have uh, a population of about 40 lake sturgeon or 40,000 lake sturgeon. That's a lot of lake sturgeon. Uh, so there's a lot of them out there. Um, and every winter, uh, just starting on Saturday, two days ago, uh, they, in February, have a two-week uh, spearfishing season for these sturgeon. So, uh, you know, it is a, a really a great cultural uh, cultural event, um, you know, going out there. I actually uh, met up with a colleague, and we kind of talked uh, sturgeon and hung out over at uh, by one of the check-in stations. And it is, it is really, a, it's a great, uh, it is a greatly managed, you know, it's a success story for a, a fish management uh, program because you know sturgeon are uh, struggling in a lot of places, but in in the Lake Winnebago system specifically, uh, there there's been a you know a long time love for these fish, and you know very very early on they were you know there was concerns about their populations, protection uh, you know happened a long time ago, so uh, you know they are doing really well here, and you know even it, it is 
yeah, it is a little sad because these are, you know, big, great, big fish, but people really love them. And, and, you know, they, you know, it's that love of these fish that allows them to be protected. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting story. It is, you know, just a totally great management system too. Like they have specific, like every fish that is speared has to go and be checked in and registered with the DNR, every single individual fish. So there are not fisheries like that. Um, and they check for the the sex, they check for, you know, the size of the fish, they look for tags if they were uh, tagged historically. So, you know, those, those fish are doing uh, really well. And, you know, the, the length of the season is two weeks maximum. It is actually, it can close a lot faster if they hit these quotas. So they have very specific, you know, amounts of females and males and, and juvenile fish that can be harvested. And if they hit those caps, season closes. So just a great uh, management management scene. Yeah. We're looking at some video here too, that, that it looks like y'all took. That's that's neat. So I have a question then with that season, is it like, so one of the big deals with the crab fishery um, in Alaska, right? The king crab fishery was that when they had this sort of rodeo season, it became really dangerous, right? And this is when the idea of that is the deadliest job in America, non-raising children version um, uh, happened. Is, so is, the, is this the situation with sturgeon too, where people are trying, you know, it's, it's so compact that you got to get them while you can, that it becomes dangerous or do you not see that there? No, I mean, it's a, there, so there are, there's kind of two different zones for the fishing. There's the up, up lakes region um, that generally has a, it has an individual quota there. Um, and that generally they, they harvest those and that closes early. Winnebago usually doesn't. And it's actually, it comes down to things like water clarity. Like if you have a really good water clarity season, you might hit that, those caps and close the season early. But um, you know, it is, I think they had 3000 shacks out on the ice on Winnebago this weekend, which was half where it was last year, uh, because this is kind of a, you know, we've been talking ice cover and this has just been, it's not a great ice year um, out on Winnebago. I, you know, people were driving their trucks out there. Um, I don't, I don't know. Apparently no one dropped their trucks through the ice. So that's good. But um, it is, you know, and you know, the temperature was really warm this weekend and uh, you know, people might, might just stay away. And they, I think they sell like 30,000 licenses, uh, you know, permits basically for the opportunity to get one of these fish. And, you know, people might go out there for a weekend and, you know, people will come here from out of state to like, you know, you can, you can have a guide take you out to their shack and, you know, they've cut the hole, they have all the gear. And, um, so, you know, Hey, come on up, um, come on up to uh, Winnebago and check it out sometime. It's definitely worth seeing, you know, it is cool to see these, you know, just yep. really big fish that um, you might not see other times. And then I would encourage you to come back in the spring uh, when these sturgeon are spawning in the Wolf oh, River yes. and the Upper Fox, because you can actually, it's, I, it's a happier story to see them joyfully spawning together alive than, you know, dead in a, on the ground getting checked in. But um, you know, it is, they're, they're really cool fish and, well, and when they have, a, I mean, so I, I'm the one who let us down this sad path. So I'll, 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 yeah. But the thing is, in a well-managed fishery, this is something that people do, right? And and sturgeons are just yeah. magnificent. Um, and and so it it uh, you know, but but there are many magnificent things that people hunt. Um, and and so when it's well managed, I think that there's a lot of ways that you can do that well. But yeah, I strongly recommend going to see baby sturgeon too because they're just cute with their little button nose. And we have a comment from uh, Andrew uh, in Facebook, and he said he just had a 60-minute spearing session on an inland 
or season, season. Andrew, was the whole season 60 minutes? Five fish were allowed to be harvested. A big fish. What is this, Katie? So this is on Black Lake in Michigan. And they also have a sturgeon population, but their quota is obviously much, much smaller. And so in recent years, the entire season has left, lasted, you know, on the order of hours as opposed to weeks, as Titus mentioned for the Winnebago system. Um, but again, even though it's this very closed amount of time, I I don't think there's been a lot of, uh, you know, deadliest catch type races, but I haven't actually been up there for Black Lake's sturgeon uh, season. I, I you, So if you recall, was it last time or two times ago? I think it was last time where we read a, a very, uh, we acted out a, a radio play, a film noir style radio play. I'm envisioning another one involving spearing uh, and people. So tune in next. Uh, uh, Carolyn says, no, that means it's a good idea. When that no comes instantly, that's when I know that I'm on the right track. But let's uh, move on. We have one more story to talk about. Uh, and so this one got uh, spawned. So this idea got spawned like Burbitt's. Uh, uh, singing an opera uh, when my kids brought home a book from the library uh, and this book was called does it fart question mark and I happened to glance at the book I was like well this is an interesting book I'm um, discussing whether or not things fart and I noticed the illustrations were by Ethan Kosak who has done the ask Dr. Fish artwork so that beautiful blue artwork that you see was done by somebody who's drawn pictures of animals farting apparently um and so that's fine so i think uh, i think we're definitely it was very appropriate for us yeah. to be in this well uh, we yeah do fish scientist farts the answer to that is a definite yes I've, i i've been with fish scientists i know what's happening there um but katie do fish fart specifically the answer is yes but only some fish so some one of the most yeah it, we're not we're not talking you know farting across the fish orders. Uh, but one of the most notable are the ocean herring. So Titus was talking about how Cisco is called lake herring, but the ocean herring actually have been uh, documented by scientists to communicate with their farts. So basically the bubbles that come out of their butts are used to help them school as a group. So increase that group communication, which sounds like the most eight-year-old boy way of communicating I've ever heard of. Um, but that's apparently how herring herring keep in school. <laughs> well, I was, and now I'm going to ask: Do do fish have butts? Uh, is my next question. Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it considers how you define a butt. Because you just said they did, Katie. So I don't, I don't know. All right. For the record, we're we're on PBS. We're on a PBS affiliate Facebook page right now. Um, all right, and uh, well, I encourage you, listeners. Sure, to we're scientists. Up. It's okay. Yeah. We're scientists. This is a scientific discussion of anatomy. So they have to communicate by farts because they're hard of herring, right? Uh, <laughs> Just thought of that. That could be a Valentine uh, right there. <laughs> and ap- apparently, apparently, with the uh, with the the herring the herring bubbles uh, story, uh, Sweden actually thought that uh, that they had Russian uh, submarines in their waters, and it turned out that it was it was just herring farts. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So what you're telling me is herring parts, you know, could be a national security issue. Right. They might launch international events. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Sure is brilliant. Good call. <laughs> so when the herrings do, I guess you don't know, but do they, re- they release little, I guess there's enough bubbles to cause a nuclear incident potentially. So, yeah. 
thanks. Well, Harry. You, I mean, herring are a schooling fish, so you're going to have big groups of them. So I guess you know, depending on how many herring you've got in a group, you could have potentially a lot of bubbles. Yeah, you know the the actual like I would debate is this really a fart? Uh, so you know the the biology here it's uh, so these herring have swim bladders and the swim bladder has two openings and what the swim bladder does it it helps the fish be neutrally buoyant. Uh, some fish have them, some fish don't. Sharks don't have swim bladders, that's why they sink and they need to keep swimming. Um, gobies, your goby dogs do not have swim bladders because uh, they want to stay on the bottom. Uh, so. They can they can take air in because they want to keep that that swim bladder inflated, and then they have this other kind of passage where they can push some of that swim bladder gas uh, out through the anus, and that's where you get your bubbles coming. Yeah, from. doesn't make a bubble. I think the bubble is kind of there's got to be a time component, right? Uh, if you slowly emit over time, then um, it's probably not a fart, but there's got to be a time, and I think the bubble could be a physical manifestation of the. Uh, there's a certain force. Uh, or or time aspect. I don't know. And it seems like they're definitely, you know, they're making the, I don't know if it's a conscious decision, but it is, you know, a, uh, they're forcing that gas out of the swim bladder um, and creating those bubbles. So that, that seems like there's a, uh, you know, they're, they're frightened and out come the bubbles. We can ask Judge Sean Hodgman, I guess. Yeah. So this is when you said, you know, we'll do a, an AI generated story. I think a better use of a future Ask Dr. Fish is further discussion of like, what does it really mean to pass gas through? Yeah. No, <laughs> well, Chat GPT, <laughs> no, it is good. But Chat GPT really has cut back on the fart humor lately. I, I've heard. Um, so uh... Yeah, <laughs> you've heard. <laughs> I'm sure. So I'm we'll, sure, yeah. we'll have to see. All <laughs> right. So. Um, so in past uh, Ask Dr. Fishes, we have had a, a kind of challenge at the end. Stuart, do you want to introduce our challenge for today? I do. This challenge is a new one that we're calling Which Fish Story is Not a Fish Story? So what we're going to do is we have randomly uh, selected an order uh, for people to go. And, and Titus, so as you recall, uh, Katie O'Reilly won 20 questions last episode. Actually, um, to tell you the truth, Katie O'Reilly was gifted uh, in celebration of Fishmas. But the thing is, a win is a win, right? A win is a win, uh, even if the win is a gift. Uh, just ask the Kansas City Chiefs after that uh, football game last night. But regardless, um, regardless, uh, so Katie is going to go. So Titus, and Carolyn, and then me are going to read a story. Two of these fish stories either are or are not fish stories, depending on what you mean by fish stories, because two of them are fake and one of them is real. Katie's job is to identify the real story. So Titus, what is your fish story? All right. Alabaster Smith of Leamington, Ontario, recently discovered that yellow perch were good for more than just Friday night fish fries. Smith, a commercial fisherman, saw fish leather for sale on a recent trip to Iceland and thought this was a great new product that he could sell at his retail shop. After months of tinkering in his workshop, Smith developed a yellow perch shoe, complete with fins and spines. It certainly looks good, said Smith, but I'll be darned if I haven't gotten poked with spines a few times putting these shoes on. And I keep getting followed around by otters. <laughs> Yellow yellow perch fish leather by Titus. Carolyn, tell me your fish story. Windsor resident Matt Gervais says he's not much of an angler, but now he's got a crazy fish story to tell with the scars to prove it. 
The local triathlete and endurance sports coach is still recovering after his right hand was chomped by a hungry muscalunge while he was swimming in Lake St. Clair last weekend. It was an intense pain, almost like burning, Gervais said. It took me a moment to understand what exactly was going on. A real ugly fish, big eyes, big teeth. Gervais and his swimming partner managed to reach a residential property on the shore without submerging Gervais's damaged hand. The property owner, alerted by their sounds, came out to help as well. Once Gervais had some emergency bandaging, he went to a Tecumseh walk-in clinic for assessment and treatment. Despite his experience, Gervais doesn't blame the muskie. In fact, his only frustration is that his injury will prevent him from training properly for his next event, an Ironman 70.3 race in Muskoka on August 29th. Triathlete, uh, maimed, mauled. By a muskie. Oh, my goodness. All right. And the third fish story is this. Now, we've all gotten skunked on a fishing trip before, but have you ever gotten skunked on a fishing trip? Well, that happened to Ainsley Nelson of Salina, Ohio recently. Nelson was trying to escape those midwinter blues by fishing on Grand Lake St. Mary's. After several casts of nothing, she felt a tug on her line and excitedly reeled in a skunk that she had accidentally snagged. She felt hooked it. At first, I thought the smell was just an early dalgo bloom, said Nelson, since the weather's been really warm this winter. But then I realized it was much worse than that. Scientists say that with the changing climate, skunks are having to turn more and more to the water to look for food, and that anglers will probably come across them with increasing frequency. Well, there's no license for skunks, said Ben Mitchell of the Ohio DNR, but I would advise fishers to catch and release. Well, catch and release and probably change your clothes before you go home. So that is story number three. So we have yellow perch fish leather. We have a triathlete with a maim, maimed by a muskie. And we have snagging a skunk. Katie O'Reilly, for all of the points, which of these is the true story? Oh, they all have like kernels that I could believe. But I think I'm going to have to go with the triathlete muskie story just because knowing a bunch of triathletes that would be like, that's just such a real line to say, I'm not mad at the fish. I just am mad. I can't swim as much or this is going to affect my training. So I feel like that's got to be the right one. Fantastic. In a more professional show, we would have something for the big reveal, but instead will the real fish story teller uh, chime in. There we go. We're up on the screen right now. (laughs) Yep. You are absolutely correct. Um, And uh, so the, there's actually quite a lot more detail in there. Um, and as you can see on the image, um, he had gotten bitten. I debated leaving that bit in because <laughs> I was like, if you know triathletes, I know you know triathletes. <laughs> I <thought> you <laughs> might. Um, fun fact, I would also like to note that I actually um, know Matt Gervais in real life. Oh. So I asked Stuart if I would somehow get bonus points if I knew the person Ooh. because we used to compete for in the same um, track and field kind of area, but I did not go triathlete. So, um, so I believe you, you win, Katie. Is I that win. Right? That's right. I don't, know. So, I don't know what I win here. You win. You win the game. You win uh, the Ask Dr. Fish prize, which is 30 seconds of soapbox time, which starts when Carolyn counts down from three. Can I gift? Can I gift mine? Because no I gifting. This is enough. You're not... No. Well, she's maybe doing it in the spirit of Valentine's oh, Day. Okay. In the, in the, this is for the spirit of Bourbontine's Day. There you go. This nice. is the traditional Bourbontine gift. Right. It's soapbox. So time. I, I do yeah. gift my soapbox 
to the Berbentine King. Well, you have to sing your gift if you're going to be doing it for Berbentine, I think. So, Take it away, Titus. 30 seconds in three, two, and one. All right. I want to uh, just encourage everyone to get out there uh, and enjoy what's left of winter. Uh, you know, here it it it's certainly a lot nicer if you can get out on the snow and on the ice. Uh, and maybe it's not too late to try ice fishing this winter. Uh, you you might get hooked, and uh, it's also a lot of fun. And hey, maybe bring your ice skates. If you don't catch any fish, get some skating in. Fantastic. Thank you. And my understanding is we have one or two more of these absurd and bad fish Valentine's share before we go. Carolyn, take it away. Um, so first, I would like to note that um, there were notes. There were some people who were listening along who were also correct with their guess about which story was true. And Titus, who wrote the story about fish shoes, there was a request that somebody would like to have those shoes. So, um, <laughs> right. so um, we were going to say um, if there are any more ridiculously awesome I've only got walleyes for you. Yeah, That's yeah, one of my yeah. favorites. <laughs> the, walleye's a cool fish, too. It is a cool fish. Like, objectively, it's a cool objectively fish. Objectively cool fish, yes. Deserves a much yeah, better... Yeah. All right. Oh, come on. It's great. Well, we could sing that one for you if you want. You always love it when I start singing, so... <gasps> You're the apple oh, of my walleye. You're, You're the, the apple, apple of my, my walleye. walleye. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Excellent. And then one more. This one speaks to my heart, uh, given my master's degree working on Red Horse. Uh, Tammy or Titus, whoever put the one in the thing, do the thing. Yeah. So I, I did put a link to um, I'm a sucker for you uh, from the Fish Commission uh, with a beautiful white sucker. There um, we go. It's uh, a beautiful white Who doesn't sucker. love suckers? Uh, whom among us doesn't love suckers? There it is. Oh, and look, it's got a there little heart for a, a lamprey, a lamprey yeah, mouth. A little heart-shaped heart. kiss from a, little, uh, a sea lamprey. No better way to celebrate than a little heart-shaped kiss. Ask Dr. Fish is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant, Wisconsin, Sea Grant, and Gobi Dog Media. The show is produced and hosted by Stuart Carlton, Carolyn Foley, Dr. Fish, Katie O'Reilly, Dr. Fish, Titus Seilheimer. Our live broadcast guru is the incomparable Tammy Winsel. And the whole thing is produced by our pals at Great Lakes Now. The podcast version of the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose. And we encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com podcast artwork is by ethan kosak you can view his portfolio at ethan kosak that's k-o-c-a-k.com uh maybe there'll be drawings of farts there i'm not sure but go check out the book anyway if you have questions for the doctor's fish just send an email to ask at gmail.com use the twitter hashtag AskDrFish. if you're still on twitter and know how to see tweets which not all of us do we have a fish hotline why don't you call it 765-496-iisg Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you live on YouTube and Facebook and who knows where else at 11 Eastern on the second Monday of every month. And in between now and then, if you have fish questions, science questions, or life questions, just ask Dr. Fish. <laughs>